0: I'm hoping my, my novel touches people to, you know, just bring back all these stories of the trauma that people had to go through is just incredible. And how, how medically advanced we are now.
1: Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am so happy to be joined by Judith Brenner, author of the novel The Moments Between Dreams.
0: And I would love to write this story. The woman had to be hypnotized because they could not drug her or she would lose her breath, and they had to induce labor. Can you imagine?
1: Judith F. Brenner owns Creative Lakes Media LLC, a freelance writing and editing services company. She is the managing editor and publisher of Sharpener's Report, a national publication with paid circulation in a professional service and repair industry. Her personal essays have been published in Writers in the Know Literary Magazine and Minnesota Parent Magazine. She completed the Iowa University Mini MFA Workshop in 2019. Judith is a member of the Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis and the Professional Editors Network. She resides in Minnesota with her husband and has two daughters. Today, I'll be talking to her about her novel, The Moments Between Dreams. Well, I wonder if you can start just by telling us about Carol, your main character. Um, What are the challenges she faces in your novel?
0: Um, Certainly. So Carol um, is a young woman when we meet her at the beginning and uh, she's already has young children at home. But the um, the flashback is her getting a um, opportunity to have a home with her new husband. And she always felt with her family's upbringing that she would have some choices in the world and has emulated her parents in in fairly good middle class Chicago, Polish American society that um, is doing well after the depression. But then, um, when she marries Joe, finds that, um, he's more of a controlling personality than she ever envisioned when she was dating him. And that's an adjustment with any newlywed couple of the yin and yang of them, but it becomes aggressively worse in that he's got a jealous streak and a controlling streak and also a temper that after he comes home from the war, um, she is reacting to and trying to figure out, well, how do I manage this marriage so that I don't upset him? So she's really feeling taking it on herself as women typically do. And particularly in the forties felt that as a homemaker, that would be her duty would be to make sure her husband's happy. Um, and, but pleasing him was impossible. And she's also, um, changed in the sense that her motherhood is challenged by a very ill child who cannot walk and needs to learn to walk. And so just adding that stress onto the factor, she doesn't need to manage her husband when she's trying to manage and empower her daughter to walk again. And so her transformation is a strong woman, but through the marriage, she's becoming weaker and having lower self-esteem because Joe keeps making her feel inferior. at the same time while she's boosting Ellie's spirits and trying to empower her child to overcome a disability. And as she um, is withdrawn and to the point where she feels at one point, uh, life may not be worth living because she's not fulfilling her dream to be the best mother she can. And she's got some good sisters and family to help Ellie. Um, She really withdraws and, and is, um, challenged by that. So it's her transformation. She's got to find her meaning for life, her zest for life, and pull through for her family, um, particularly her son and her daughter, to to get back her mojo, if you will. So she's that strong woman she started with. And that we have to see as a reader um, how she deals with that low and then roller coaster back up to where she wanted to be.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a lot there. Um, One thing I wanted to touch on, because uh, I actually had not heard of this before, but um, it's something that comes up in your novel, and that's intimate partner violence. Can you talk about what that is? And is it any different than what we know as domestic violence?
0: I'm not um, an expert on that field, but from my readings in that, um, intimate partner violence is specific to where a person is hurting you that you've had sexual relations with and you're in a relationship or had been in a relationship with that person. Um, And that could include uh, sexual assault within the marriage bed or in the partner bed. And so IPV, Intimate Partner Violence, is an acronym um, for those situations along with any kind of emotional and physical abuse. It could even be economical abuse. Domestic violence definitely happens on the home front. It is a synonym to that, um, but it also can be directed toward a child or a grandparent. Um, so domestic being within the same household, not necessarily an intimate partner. That's my understanding of it. And actually, I have calls out to the experts that I've leaned on for research during this um, process of getting the book um, research so I could write confidently about the situation uh, to see their definitions but it, it there is some debate in the community about why don't we just call it domestic violence but so i don't think there's a wrong term there intimate partner violence is more specific on who's um culpable and and the relationship with the that couple
1: and i'm curious you said that joe her husband comes back from the war with a bad temper in addition to already having a controlling personality. Was that, from your research, was that common for men coming back from World War II or more common, I guess, than than typical, that they would come back with this PTSD or a temper that would affect their marriage life?
0: Um, I didn't find... um, If you look for research, you'll find it, and I didn't find that statistic initially, um, but I have seen it since, that the military... Um, does have a higher prevalence of of people who have um, domestic violence in their um, family life. And so there's a statistic you can find that shows that in my novel, I wasn't trying to prove that it was the cause and effect of his service, but I did want that hint that a reader could infer, did something happen to him in the Navy where he's watching these planes, um, you know, crash and burn on Lake Michigan during training exercises and would he be next? And, you know, that could be a a situation. There are some people who are wired, um, um, red hot in a way and that's how they, whether they're in the military or not, that's, that's their personality. So I, I did play with that. Um, but I didn't want to prove that, being that this is fiction.
1: And you know, we, like like I said, this does cover some important topics, but it's also historical fiction. Can you talk about the setting? Um, why did you choose that time and place for for this novel?
0: Sure. So it, it because it talks about the epidemic of polio, um, going back to the 40s, although polio has been around for a hundred years. Years and the vaccine is not as as um, old as that. It's only been around since the 60s, late 50s when it was ex- being in trials. Um, you had to go back to the 40s to really tell a story of of the polio epidemic epidemic. And I chose Chicago as a setting um, because that's my hometown, and I wanted to depict what I the setting I knew and the history I knew. I was able to do a lot of research with the um, the newspaper archives, with the Chicago Tribune. Now the Chicago Sun-Times, I understand, is sold recently, so it's harder to find. But just Chicago Tribune has been wonderful um, in web researches and looking at their archives of specific articles about the 40s and how many military were deployed and then exactly how many polo case, polio cases there were. I was even able to find ads um, for the March of Dimes, a lot of my research revolved around the March of dimes to understand um, their funding and fundraising for a polio vaccine. So the setting really related to to my history and upbringing and um, and also the fact that my my mother was a is well she 's passed, but she was a polio survivor and grew up in Chicago, so that was where my book is set.
1: And um, I've also, in other interviews, heard you talk about your grandmother. Does she play a role in, in inspiring you to write this story?
0: She did, yes. I, I interviewed her um, just as a, not for any purpose at the time of of wanting to write a novel, but just as a curiosity as a grandchild, like, what was it like when you were raising my mom and i had had a, a tape recorder going and while she wanted to tell me about um my mom rosemary being hospitalized she couldn't get past starting to talk about the restrictions that she was living under and that she only had a few dollars a week to stretch uh, a family meal plan and she always said you know you wouldn't want to have lived the the life i lived and yet she wouldn't elaborate too much. And so my mother filled in some blanks for me about, um, her father, my, my grandmother's spouse, my grandfather being very strict, not wanting her to wear makeup and, um, accusing her of, uh, flirting when she was not. And so outside of those conversations, I didn't get any specifics, but I, I felt that was so tragic that here a mother would have to, um, try to be the best mother she could um, and inspire a child to get over this this disability or not get over it, but live with it in the best life that she could. And yet she's balancing all these other dynamics in the family that um, really uh, affect the the child rearing and even those children's personalities and how they're looking at, well, this is this is normal. This is how a household runs. And my mother didn't know any different. That was, that was her household. So I, I found that fascinating. And I, I wanted to see how um, that would play out in a, in a book, in a, in, a, in a piece of fiction where I could fill in the blanks. And I, I purposely went through a lot of research through the National Coalition of uh, Domestic Violence Against Women. There's a, a group with that acronym in Washington, D.C. And I was able to connect with their webinars and and that with no other purpose of listening in to understand the movement, what the trends were and how, uh, victims are, and, and domestic violence survivors are, are being handled in the United States. It, It was truly fascinating.
1: Well, so it sounds like you have quite a mix here of both personal history, historical data um sociological data uh was that hard for you to and then well then of course you've got your, your character elements of character and plot was that hard for you to mix all that together and balance it all and to finally reach a uh a plausible enjoyable story
0: I I think it was very challenging I I had these tidbits of stories and I'm one that um, plotted the book after I had some short stories written, simple, simple in my mind, simple short stories that were part of, woven into the book, um, and I I did more of a self study of um, a master of fine arts in that um, researching the different ways to plot a book. Um, And I took some classes at the Loft Literary Center. And I think I mentioned to you the the University of Iowa's um, mini MFA program, where I was able to get some good coaching on on how to develop the plot further so that there's an actual climax and how you get that character out of that situation. So it, it was really fun. That was really the creative fun part is to get I got a big whiteboard. And I knew the years of the the drama that had to happen. And I wanted to make sure that the character-driven uh, plot was um, linear with the years that this crisis of the epidemic took place. So it was a fun process to to do that. And I was able to move some chapters over that would make a better scene. And then, even reading the the newspapers, Colin, I found sadly so many news reports of domestic violence. IPV is more of a more recent term, but in in five years ago, when I was really in the crux of writing the plot, domestic violence among uh, primarily affecting women. Uh, um, men, you know beating someone or strangling someone to the point that they that they would um be afraid to even call the police. I, I pulled some of that from real life stories that had nothing to do with um my grandparents' relationship, but current last uh few years in the Twin Cities and in in the nation, um, because I really wanted to show what what happens to someone um when they're in that situation. And and I can imagine then there was a lot of research I did in law and family court, and I found some fascinating articles uh, by scholars in, in Denver who were um, writing about family court and how the 40s and the 50s would favor the male, the father, the provider for custody battles and for alimony because they felt you know, courts reflect society as we see them today. So that was that was really interesting to me. And I, I was able to then invent a scene that I hope is, is very enjoyable. But it, it, I did rewrite it a couple of times because I, I had so many facts I wanted to throw into the book, but you want to make them natural and have them come out through dialogue and character. And that's where the creative part was fun to um, have Carol's brother be a lawyer, but not an expert in family law. So he brings in a, a friend and you'll see that in the book he has a conversation where we, we i sprinkled in some of those statistics of what were a woman's choices um in the 50s to leave a husband and they were quite dim.
1: Well it's it's incredible to hear you talk about all the work you put in it definitely sounds like you didn't cut any corners that's for sure. <laughs> no. You in another interview you talk about always wanting to be a writer but not wanting to write fiction until you had some life experience. Now, you have talked about some of your education, the classes that you've taken, um, some of the studying you've done, and, and every writer needs some of that, but um, how important do you think it is to have that life experience? What does that mean exactly?
0: Yeah, I, I really felt that um, writing fiction, I've, I have a parallel, although I'm not a drama girl, um, a parallel that when I watch a lot of television shows about actors, and I and. When actors have to channel their own emotions to play a part, I feel that that's what I do when I sit at the keyboard or at the journal um, writing ideas. I want to channel well, what emotion made me very excited or happy or tearful and tap into that drama so that I could write it quite emotionally. And then you have to let go and let the character take off because the character is not me. But to uh, have that life experience of giving birth to a child, of, of seeing a child hurt. Um, I once had to see my child get X-rayed and a CT scan and uh, thankfully everything was OK. But just that drama of, oh, my God, someone needs an MRI and they're only 10 years old or what have you. <laughs> it just makes you frightfully, um, um, you know, you're ready to, to sacrifice what you can for that, that child so that um tapping into what carol must have felt seeing her daughter having to have um you know walk with braces for the second time after she's learned once you know that that pain of of cringing when you see her fall or that she can't climb steps in the snow i mean that so i felt like i w- i didn't want to tackle writing fiction until i felt ready so i really enjoyed just sticking to the um, journalism ca- careers um, until I was ready to, to feel like I was ready.
1: <laughs> Hi listeners, this is Colin Mustful, the host of the podcast and the founder and editor of History Through Fiction. I just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about my favorite History Through Fiction novel, It's called The King's Anatomist, The Journey of Andreas Vesalius by Ron Blumenfeld. The novel tells the story of the life, times, and mysterious death of Andreas Vesalius, who's also known as the father of human anatomy. Using a fictional best friend named Jan Vandenbosch, the author does a fantastic job of sharing some really fascinating scientific, artistic, and medical advancements of the European Renaissance all while developing a realistic and emotional tale of grief and platonic love. On top of that, there's a twist at the end, an engaging little mystery that unfolds. The author himself is a physician, and I learned so much from this novel while also caught up in a great story. I hope you'll consider reading it, and that's why, right now, you can get a copy direct through our online store at $5 off the retail price. Just go to historythroughfiction.com store and use the code PODCAST at checkout. That's code PODCAST at checkout. Thank you, and now please enjoy the rest of the interview. I'm curious about one of the blurbs you have by Sonny Roller, a polio survivor, and you've already talked about polio in your own family, but did you talk to some other polio survivors? And and also, it says that uh, he's part of the Post-Polio Health International Board of Directors. So I think that that was surprising to me because we just think of polio as something that's eradicated. I wouldn't think there's a, a board. Uh, do you know what, what it is? Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: I can. I am not a member, but I can tell you based on their, their website and having talked with Sunny, um, Sunny is her blog name. Um, she is on the board of the Post-Polio Health International, so it is an international organization. There's something that I didn't write about. Had I taken this novel even a further, um, another 20 years down the road, and I saw my own mother suffer from post- polio syndrome. And so many of the polio survivors that are still living today have post-polio syndrome, which atrophies their good muscles that they were able to use and compensate for those that were damaged during um, the epidemic. The virus will have paralyzed their muscles. So they're using a good shoulder and compensating for the the bad shoulder, good leg over the right, or the bad leg. Well, when you're the syndrome occurs, they're going to have a tough time swallowing. Um, They're losing mobility. So now they're forced to use a wheelchair when perhaps they were able to walk with a brace or a cane. And Post Polio Health Network has physicians on their board at University of Michigan. They also have a physician in Kansas. They're all over the country. And they do have an international representation that I can't speak of who's representing them. But they are a network for these survivors who are dealing with um, post polio because if you go in from my mother's perspective and from this these members they can present at a at a hospital with an ailment that you or i might have but because they cannot get up on a table um, they can't do what a doctor or nurse wants them to do so that the exam can happen and i saw my mother struggle with this and physicians today and nurses won't understand how to care for someone who had a disease that was a virus that was 20 years ago. So this network is gain, gaining awareness for today's physical therapists and cardiologists and diabetic um, caregivers who understand what a post-polio uh, survivor um, is challenged by because they, they won't have seen it. It's, it's, it's just indescribable. You you can't. There's not like one symptom. Post polio, excuse me, polio. You couldn't really say, oh, it does this to you or that to you. It it can cripple an arm. It can cripple a leg. It can cripple your lungs. Uh, it's so varied that I believe this network is really helpful to to the world to to let caregivers know and and the medical community know what these people struggle with and their fundraising arm as well.
1: Well, it makes a lot more sense hearing you explain it because, yeah, as you mentioned, i I never would would have even thought of that and and how necessary that that would be.
0: I have to tell you, Colin, I was playing tennis this morning, and some I walked by, and someone said, "Oh, your book, you know, your book, your book." And I, and then, what's it about? And a woman just stopped me and said, "This means so much to me." And she, she and I sat for a minute, and I couldn't believe her story, Colin. Her mother had polio at twenty six. She was already born, the woman I'm speaking of, but her brother was born inside an iron lung, which is this tank that a person would lay in to be able to breathe. And she was pregnant. Her mother was pregnant and about to give birth. And I would love to write this story. The woman had to be hypnotized because they could not drug her or she would lose her breath. And they had to induce labor. Can you imagine? I mean, no, wow. the, the, this is just I'm hoping my my novel touches people to, you know, just bring back all these stories of the trauma that people had to go through is just incredible. And how how medically advanced we are now with helping people breathe if 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 polio or any virus affects your breath.
1: Well, I wonder if you can talk more about that, because I noticed that a lot of the reviewers um say how relevant your story is to today, that there are parallels to today and, and -hmm. you bring up breathing. And of course we have this pandemic, which restricts people's ability to breathe. And and there is uh, the whole, um, getting respirators to, to hospitals. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how this story set in the 1940s, um, is, is related to what, to things that are transpiring today?
0: Yes. Yes. The, um, the fact that, um, my, as my publicist said, the world has stopped before. The research I've done um, reflects that movie theaters were closed during the polio epidemic, at least in Chicago, and then throughout the Midwest and beyond, I'm sure, people thought it was coming from the swimming pool. There was really no understanding of where the virus was coming from. It seemed to be coming from water. And if you think back to January of 2020, we Americans did not know where it was coming from. There was, I was writing articles about don't touch you know, the steel when you're getting deliveries in manufacturing plants because we don't know if this virus is living on the surfaces. So that fear of the unknown happened in the 40s with the epidemic of polio and then in the pandemic of 2020 with COVID-19. So there's a great parallel there of of fear, unknown. And then you have the opportunities of the medical community in creating a vaccine and giving people hope, which took much longer in the 40s. It took over a decade. Um, So here, you know, medical advances and technology allowed this, this vaccine to come through. And yet, when you look back at the 40s, the fear of the vaccine was very similar to the the fear of vaccines today and and different reasons, but there were um, trials that were quite scary with polio. Um, One, The Cutters incident, you can look up, created um, a situation where people, given the vaccine, became paralyzed. Worst thing ever. Um, It was not widespread. They stopped it, um, and then they had to go back to the lab and correct it, and there was a big debate of Do you do live vaccine or oral vaccine that's a dead virus? So just that commonality of fear. And then in 2020, having um, researched about domestic violence, there were news reports, women and and men could have been, um, living with their partners, working from home. And so then if you've got an abusive situation, but that person gets a reprieve because they get to go to the office and they're not home with the person that's being so controlling or violent with them, all of a sudden you're in your house with that person who's been physical or emotionally abusing you 24-7, and there's nowhere to go. You can't even go to a restaurant. So the pandemic uh, really escalated uh, crisis calls, and people were even afraid to call out because their computers were overlooked by the abuser. They could track what you're looking at. So it really became more of a fear then, And the parallel in the forties was very different. People were ashamed and there weren't those resources to call out and get help. People were very complacent. They didn't talk about it. It was shameful. And that shame carries on today. People don't talk about it. I saw signs for domestic abuse before I even was writing about this on the back of a bathroom stall uh, in a congregation. So, you know, to know that it's hidden And you have to secretly talk to someone um, with a poster. It's sad, but it's um, so that that's where I see the connections of um, the rise in domestic violence when you're trapped at home, and then the the resources, even though they're there today, um, could be you know you you could be prevented from even taking advantage of those.
1: Yeah, quite a few direct connections there, and it just kind of shows how valuable it is to continue to study history and, and to share stories like this.
0: Yeah, I learned, Colin, recently that, again, because of this recent news with Amber Heard and Johnny Depp and their converse, their uh, defamation lawsuit in the news today, and I was reading an article that said it wasn't until the O.J. Simpson case where his ex-wife was killed, and that's right after that. The federal government created the National Domestic violence hotline so that's how long people have not had any kind of resource to get help
1: wow uh so uh, you know we've talked about everything all the work you've done you put into this um i wonder could you quantify exactly how long it took you from start to publication to to create this story and publish it
0: oh sure Sure. Well, I had the idea for it um, back in 2011, but I wasn't quite ready, as I mentioned, to, to tackle fiction. Um, and I had started a, a separate freelance book editing business at the time. So I was more inspired um, when I had more time on my hands and, and I had my home life managed better. And it took me two years of solid writing. And I had a beautiful, still do, writer's group. And with deadlines of knowing my um lady friend writers would be eager to read a chapter and i would read um, what their manuscripts were working on what they were working on every month really sped my uh, timeline i didn't give myself a goal of when to finish it but i'll tell you when the pandemic hit even that made me want to publish it faster Um, but it really was a two-year writing process of of you know, sparks flying off the keyboard and then truly like heavy editing to make sure that the plot, it matched the plot. And it it was, um, you know, I call it layering where you have the prose and then you get to go back and add in all the adjectives and the the scenery and what did it smell like? What did it, you know, what did the foods taste like? What did they feel? Add all those senses. So that took some time. And once it was finished, printing it out was quite celebration. You know, just to see all those pages on a laser printer was a big deal that I I felt it was done. Um, I did change the last page at at an, ending even after I considered it done once more. And then I really went to the loft literary center when I knew I was close to being done and took some classes about, um, that would expose my, um, presence to agents. And so there if you know the writing world is quite competitive and you have to sometimes pay for FaceTime or get drawn in a lottery for FaceTime with an agent and researching which agents are looking for the type of work that you're writing, it takes research as well. It almost took as much research as writing the book. So that was that was fun. But I really wanted to try agency rep first because I I'm not a perfectionist, but I want to make sure I create a a great product. And that gave me the confidence when I did get some calls for the manuscript, first 50 pages or a couple chapters or the full manuscript to get some great feedback from the New York agents and even um, one in LA and one in Illinois that gave me some great feedback that it it was a good product. They just didn't have a room for it on the list. Um, so then I decided I would look at a different route. And while I considered self-publishing, I decided I, I really... Don't want to format an ebook myself i i I know my talent and I know when to hire out for that and I was really excited to learn how many hybrid publishers there are through some webinars that I went through and, and researched the top three that I perceived were of the highest quality and were not vanity press they were very selective on what they chose and and so i I interviewed with three different hybrids that were open to to my manuscript and um, went from there. I I was, I ended up with Greenleaf book group in Texas and I'm thrilled. I went with them. They're top notch professional, all, you know, in every respect from their editing team to their distribution and marketing team, really happy with them, but it took a year, took a year of uh, that process to happen.
1: Well, yeah, that's, that's great. um, That you found a good partner in Greenleaf and it's also interesting um it, it really to hear you talk about the the process how long it is all the steps that are involved and in, you know i'm sure you skipped over many of them um but it certainly does give us readers uh, appreciation for just what it takes to to put a story out in the world
0: yeah i think it's getting faster and and it's a good news thing that the internet and uh, has made self-publishing more open, but I I also feel that there's a lot of errors being published out there, and and you know I I didn't want that. I wanted to have very many checks and balances because I I don't want to rush something and then just say oh it's out there and and then you I hear people have to redo a cover or they have to resubmit because um, there's errors. And I'm a big I'm a book editor, so I I am a big advocate for. Editing and not not biased. I feel um, that my clients have seen the value of of what an editor can do for a manuscript, whether it's developmental or or proofreading, all the way to the the you know dot sure. on that eye. Well,
1: I didn't want to leave uh, the interview without asking about your your editing work. So it's called Creative Lakes Media. Um, can you just talk about a little bit about what it is?
0: Sure, sure. So it, it's been around for. 10 years, and it. Um, I'm a book editor and um, authors in the Twin Cities primarily, but some out of state will come to me f- with their manuscripts that are polished. And I'll, um, depending on how what their needs are, I've done developmental editing as well as copy editing for the um, Chicago Manual style, is the preferred. Um, Style book for book edit for book publishers, and so I edit with that in mind. Um, I'm also versed in um, APA uh, style guides and AP as a journalist. So sometimes I'll work with the University of Minnesota um, with fellows in their um, uh, postgraduate program where they want to be published in a journal, and they'll they'll contact Creative Lakes Media through uh, my website so that I can help make sure their paper, when they submit, flies through their, their publishing standards. So it's really a joy. I, I get to read manuscripts that I would never write, and I learn. I love reading, as most of your listeners do. And we all can learn from a book, whether it's nonfiction or fiction. It takes you places in, um, and in topics that you might not experience in your own life.
1: Yeah, I can definitely second that. As a publisher, just getting even if it's a story that we don't publish, it's certainly something new to me most of the time that I'd never heard of. So, what are you are you working on a a new manuscript?
0: I am. I've I've been listening to reader feedback, but I have in mind um, that I might take. I've I've heard from readers there they like the character Sam and. I have some ideas for a a sequel that would include Sam more prominently. Um, And I also have an idea for the character Ellie and taking her historically through fiction um, with the dilemma of um, pro-choice and pro-life today. I thought that would be a a controversial topic that I could tackle and um, thinking how many singers do you know, Colin, that have a disability and are on stage with a cane or a brace and are a pop star? And then their fans might be both pro-life and pro-choice. And should Ellie have to have an abortion because it would mean her life would be uh, succumb to a wheelchair for the rest of her singing career? Could that be the conflict? So I've got some some ideas floating around um, on that venue. But you know, Sam's an opportunity too, and I, you know, I'm just—I've just, just got to play a little bit um, in the journal and keyboard to see what what's really going to spark on the before I plot it out completely.
1: Sure, Well just diving right back into some heavy topics, some important questions.
0: Yeah, I I don't mind. Um, it, it's, I don't like to write a beat read. Sure. <laughs> let's, let's make people think a little bit.
1: Well, Judith, uh, thank you so much for joining me, and congratulations on the moments between dreams.
0: Oh, thank you so much for, for uh, this opportunity. I appreciate it, and I love your show.